The strength of our economy has been a big surprise for most of us as we move through the COVID experience on our bubble island. Governments printing money and borrowing is becoming cheaper and easier, resulting in rising asset prices. How long can we expect this situation to continue? Are there headwinds we need to be aware of? How are we faring in a global sense? I personally wouldn't want to be buying with an LVR of 98% risk overpaying and potentially ending up in negative equity quite quickly. I don't think house prices are going to fall in the near term, but it just doesn't give you much buffer if things um, do go south. And um, I think, I guess, from the bank's perspective, they're not too concerned because it's guaranteed by the government. They've effectively got that lender's mortgage insurance, but it does leave households quite exposed if things were to change. Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia and author of Auction Ready. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say on here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of a professional. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website as well as Download our free full or forecaster report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au No property discussion is complete without considering the interconnectedness of our economy, locally, nationally and globally. And this is probably the reason we get such a great feedback from new listeners when we interview economists. And today we've invited a new guest elephant writer, Carlos Cacho, Chief Economist of Jardin Group Australia, a leading investment advisory group specialising in the competitive energy, renewables and agriculture markets, as well as developing and arranging trading and future strategies. And prior to Jardin, Carlos spent three years as Australian economist at UBS Australia and before that five years at Colonial First State Global Asset Management. So thank you so much, Carlos, for joining us today. We're very, very keen to hear your insights. Thanks for having me, Veronica and Chris. I'm keen to be here. Great to chat. I guess um, 2021 is a bit different to 2020, but I mean, how's Australia's recovery been in your view and what areas are sort of doing really strong and and I guess things that are sluggish, but how are we also comparing on a global sort of standard in terms of our sort of recovery this year? That's that's a great question, um, Chris. Look, I think I think it's fair to say the recovery has surprised pretty much everyone, whether it's professional economists, the RBA, the government. We're doing a lot better than anyone expected we would be doing, even just a few short months ago. If you look back to February when the RBA released their forecast, they expected unemployment was only going to get down to 5.5% by the middle of next year. We're now basically at 5.5% already. So we're running more than Mm. 12 months ahead of the the RBA's expectations from just a couple of months ago. So it's, it's been really, really strong. Already in the first quarter, we think the size of the economy is going to get back to where it was before COVID, which is a very fast recovery if you consider the size of the weakness we had last year and very fast also compared to prior recessions. On a global scale, we're also doing pretty well. So while the US economy is also expected to get back to where it was pre-COVID um, in the March quarter, for their unemployment rate is still much higher. They still have 8 million more people out of work than they did before COVID hit. We've actually got more people in jobs now than we had in February last year. So we have already more than uh, recovered all of the jobs that were lost in those first couple of months of COVID. So that's been probably the biggest driver of the recovery 
just the fact that we didn't lose as many jobs as we feared, and we've seen them all real come back very quickly. And as you as you know, um, you know, if people have jobs, they're going to be spending, and they're going to also going to be looking to buy houses. Mm. It's. I mean, I've heard lots of theories on this. You know, one being basically you lock into twenty five million people into onto an island, and they've got to spend money you know, locally, not not um, on their overseas holidays. And obviously the changing patterns of what we're spending money on. Where does this put sort of conventional economic theory? I mean, it does it are there new textbooks being written? I think it's, it's in a way it's kind of going back to the old Keynesian theory that kind of mm. government of government support. It's kind of um, you know the way some people have been talking about it is it's almost kind of rewriting the rule book and saying, well, actually no, having a recession is almost more of a political decision than an economic decision. Mm-hmm. What the government has shown in this last year is that if you introduce the right policies and if you spend enough money, you can largely offset the effect of a quite strong kind of external shock to the economic system. Now, obviously, that's not going to work in all cases. This COVID recession is very different to what we saw in the GFC or in the 90s recession in Australia. It's really very much kind of an external shock as opposed to something that's been developed from inside the economy. But it it is showing us that if you introduce the right policies, if you spend enough money, if you're willing to um, increase the debt and deficit significantly, you can really reduce the economic damage and you can really supercharge the recovery. I guess that's the key thing, though, isn't it? The debt that we've taken on to get the recovery back to where we are today. So the numbers all look great, but there's a sort of debt hangover that we've got to pay off. I mean, how big is that actually going to be? And and how long do you think there's going to be some time where that's going to impact our future growth, right? Like getting 50 grand of credit card debt, and you can't spend that money in the future, plus you've got to pay the interest. So how big is that sort of debt hangover going to be? Look, yeah, look, absolutely. There's there's a lot of debt that the Australian government has taken on to fund this fund this recovery, but it's incredibly cheap for them to borrow. If you look at where the ten year government bond yield is at the moment, it's around one point seven, one point eight percent. So they're paying a really very low rate to borrow for for a long time. If you look at it where it was during the depths of the crisis, it got down to below one percent. So in that situation, when you're borrowing for so cheaply for so long, it's really, you know, it's much more worthwhile to take on that debt than it is to try and bring austerity and kind of muddle through. So we'll have a lot of debt. Our gross debt is going to be over $1 trillion at the federal level, over $1.5 trillion at the kind of total national level once you include the states. So yes, there's a lot of debt, but it's still relatively low compared to the rest of the world. If you look at Japan, US, most of Europe, a lot of those governments have debt in excess of 100% of GDP. We're now only going to be getting up to around 50% at the federal level and closer to 75% in total. So we're still relatively low compared to the rest of the developed world. And the affordability of that debt has never been better. So as the, the parliamentary budget office recently came out with, you know, there's, there's they don't really see too much of a negative impact, even from these continued deficits for the next couple of years, just because it's, it's so cheap to borrow. I can't help but draw a comparison between, you know, the f- federal government borrowing lots and lots of money and individuals borrowing lots and lots of money to buy a home or investment property with with sort of the intention never to pay that debt off, you know, that they're relying or well, individuals buying property might be relying on capital growth so that then when they do sell it, then they pay the debt off then, you know. 
is that, I don't know, it, it, I'm not an economist clearly, but in, in some sort of similar way, is there a parallel that can be drawn between that and the way uh, governments are actually borrowing money? Well, in a way, yeah, I think so, Veronica. You know, if you look at how individuals are now behaving towards mortgages and debt, I think it definitely has changed in the last few years. It used to be that we borrowed to buy a house with the intention that one day we'd own it outright and we worked really hard to pay it off as quickly as possible. Yeah. And then we kind of had the security of knowing that no matter what happened, we always had that roof over our heads. Mm. Now the attitude of a lot of buyers is um, I'm going to borrow as much as I can afford to repay today. And my end game is that hopefully um, I can sell it down the line for a big capital gain and downsize if I need to, if I can't yeah. re- repay it. I think there's a lot of, um, in my conversations with a lot of people in industry, you know, be it mortgage brokers, real estate agents, they're already telling me that there's, there's been this massive shift in how and how people kind of look at debt and how they think about it. And in a way, it's the same for the government. You know, the government, um, government debt essentially in the modern world is never really being intended to be repaid. Mm. The government talks about trying to, you know, pay down our debt. But um, if you look at in all the large developed economies, all we really do is we try to we try to grow the economy faster than we grow the debt. So as a share of the economy, it's getting smaller. Yeah. But really, there's never any intention that the, the federal government's going to be able to repay a trillion dollars of debt in any kind of fast or, you know, reasonable period of time. And then you could argue, I guess, that, you know, if the Australian government, if we're at, say, 50% of GDP and other countries are 100% or even more of GDP, then, you know, we've got we've got a fair amount of um, free space there for another catastrophe. Yeah, look, we're, we're still in a relatively good place. We're obviously a lot more indebted than we were uh, 18 months ago, but we still have, relative to the rest of the world, we still have a, a fair bit of runway, you could say. I guess the key difference to think about with from, you know, comparing the household to the government is the fact that essentially the government is taking out a, you know, if you think about it, kind of like an unlimited year year mortgage. There's no limit on the government's earning potential. There's no, you know, it's not like they get the government gets to 60 years old and retires. But obviously <laughs> as a household, you have to think about that risk that at some stage you're not going to be able to work mm. and that the debt you have at, at that stage, you may have to um, sell assets to pay off if, if you still have a mortgage. So it is a, it is a bit of a different calculation in that sense that there is a finite um, working life for a, for a household while there's not for a government. Which Brings us back to employment, though. You said that we've actually got more employment now versus uh, before COVID. Does that take into account underemployment? Yeah, surprisingly, underemployment is actually lower than it was before COVID. That's been, I think, a big surprise to me and other economists as well is the fact that not only have we recovered all the jobs that we lost, but we've actually seen up a, a tightening in the, in the underemployment rate, which pre-COVID was probably one of the things that left left us being a little bit more concerned about the outlook, that even though unemployment was falling, you still had a lot of people who wanted to work more hours and couldn't. In terms of what's driving that, I think it's a combination of things. It's, you know, it's the fact that we don't have the the normal pool of labour coming into Australia. Yep. Normally, we've got two to three hundred thousand net migrants coming into Australia a year. At the moment, that's actually negative because we've got people who've been here studying or working who are who are leaving and going back home, which is more than offsetting the Australians coming back. And so that actually means there's um, the pool of labour is not growing as quickly as it normally would, and I think that and that's meaning businesses are having to um, you know take on more staff, give people more hours, and that's leading to shortages in some areas. Does that challenge the belief then that immigration is good for the economy? 
Look, I don't, I don't think it challenges the belief. Im- immigration is, is good for the economy in a lot of ways, but having a higher labour supply does mean it is harder to get the unemployment rate down. And that's just, um, you know, the reality is you when you have immigration, people are coming here, they are, they're working, they're earning money, they're paying taxes, they're spending, they grow the economy, but it also means that the unemployment rate is going to be higher than it would otherwise be and wages are probably going to be a little bit lower than they would otherwise be. So there are some negatives and some positives depending on how you look at it. So while we're on the debt conversation, I mean, you've got governments have, yep, taking a lot of debt on, consumers are taking a lot of housing debt. I don't think they're taking on a lot of consumer sort of short-term debt. You could, you know, answer that question for me. But what about the corporates? I mean, to, to get the unemployment rate down, they've got to invest in staff and they could fund that out of future cash flows, which may or may not be confident, but they could also take on debt to, to fund this and, you know, other spending um, investment, et cetera. How are corporate Australia sort of do, attitude to debt changing? That's that's a really great question, Chris, and it's it's really the missing piece of the puzzle at the moment. Business investment's been pretty anemic in Australia for quite a long time, and it, that's still the case. At the beginning of COVID, we saw a big drawdown in business credits, so we saw businesses taking on a lot of debt, yeah. and that was largely just businesses being conservative, looking at the outlook and saying, I don't know what's going to happen. I'm not sure if I'm still going to have access to this in a month or two, so I'm going to be prudent and I'm just going to draw down my facilities, draw draw down whatever loans I have available and keep it in cash just in case. Then what we saw over the the next few months after that is that a lot of the businesses, when the outlook turned out to be not be so negative, they repaid that. And we haven't really seen any increase in um, in business debt since then. In fact, business credit growth, so the total value of outstanding business debt, is minus 2.6% year on year at the moment. So it's been actually declining. Mm. However, the outlook is looking a lot more positive. So yesterday, which was the, the 10th of May, we got the National Australia Bank Business Survey, which is a big survey of, of national businesses about how trading conditions are, what their confidence is. And the confidence measure in that survey was the highest since 19. 19- That's a really positive sign for business investment. If businesses are optimistic about the future, they're more likely to go out and to borrow and invest. So our expectation is that we should see business investment pick up ahead and business borrowing pick up, but we just haven't seen it yet. I guess a lot of businesses have pocketed JobKeeper, haven't they? So, you you know, they build up a buffer at least. Maybe they don't need to invest or borrow to invest when that's the case. Yeah, there's definitely some of that too. You know, we've seen the the cash flow boost to businesses from programs like JobKeeper, from the other business payments the government mm. brought in with the stimulus, as well as things like the accelerated depreciation, which gives them an extra tax back if they if they buy assets, has meant that there's businesses that have had a big boost to their cash flow and they haven't necessarily needed to borrow as much as they might normally um, need to. I guess the the conversation is is once the businesses uh, potentially do do that, that's going to be you know, the other fire, I guess, the other piston for the economy that's probably been holding us back. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's really what the RBA and what the government want to see is they want to see businesses start investing and really to drive the, the next leg of the recovery. This this first leg has been driven by all the fiscal stimulus, which has flown very quickly into the housing market. But we haven't really seen the business pick up, kind of pick up the next step. And that's really going to be the key for this year is how quickly and how much does business investment 
pick up. If it does pick up strongly, like the leading indicators, like confidence suggests, then that's going to put us in a really good position to get back to kind of the trajectory we were on pre-COVID and hopefully improve on that because, you know, we, we forget about it now, but the economy really wasn't in a great place before before COVID came along. Mm. The RBA had already cut rates twice. You don't cut rates when the economy is looking great. So yep. really, hopefully, business, a pickup in business investment can help us um, get out of the rut that we were in beforehand. So does that mean that potentially rates could rise um, shorter than the three years the RBA said they'd be on hold for? Yeah, look, it's entirely possible. The RBA, um, in a speech last week, actually reiterated that their guidance is all about the state of the economy. It's all about where the unemployment and inflation rates go. So they don't expect they're going to achieve their their inflation target of 2 to 3% until sometime in 2024. But if they achieve that sooner and if unemployment comes down faster than they expect, then they could be hiking rates um, potentially in 2023. And in fact, if you look at expectations that are priced into financial markets, the market's expecting a rate hike more in late 2023 rather than in 2024. I know consumers have got a lot of cash and see my clients who have got lots of money in offset accounts that you know, low rates have created an opportunity for them. You know, people are a bit more pessimistic or a bit more conservative you know, around their employment. So they're like, well, I'm not, I can't spend money on holidays or, you know, big consumer goods, et cetera. How big is the sort of cash pool sitting there with the consumers, I guess, and how are they going to get to have the confidence to go and spend that money on mass? It's pretty big. It's certainly, uh, we've had a big run up in consumer deposits at, at banks. So if you just look at deposits at banks, household deposits are up by about $130, $140 billion since December last year. <laughs> Sorry, December 2019. So we've had a big increase now and that, that's up about um, 14%. Oh, sorry, 12% year on year. So that's been a pretty solid increase. There is a lot of cash sitting there. Um, on top of that, as you mentioned, there's also been a big increase in offset and redraw accounts. So the RBA put out a great chart in their financial stability review um, in April, uh, showing just how much that had increased. And so pre-COVID, we were probably seeing on average, I think households were two years ahead in repayments. I think now it's jumped to almost closer to three. So there are a lot of households with a lot of uh, a lot of cash on the sidelines, whether it be in, in deposit accounts or whether it be sitting um, against their mortgage. And their property prices are rising, right? So the wealth effect, do you think that, have we actually seen the wealth effect play out yet or is this something that you could see play out? Is there a lag, I guess, and and how long till we could see consumers start to spend their property price growth? Well, so last year what we saw is we saw a, a big boost to household incomes because of all the government stimulus. So despite being in a recession, we actually saw household income go up because there were um, just such huge flows into households from those programs like Jobs, JobKeeper, JobSeeker with the COVID supplement, the one-off payments the government gave to households. And so a lot of that flowed into spending on goods. So we saw household goods, things like furniture, fridges, you know, desks, laptops, all of us setting up for work from home, really um, you know, just spiked well above normal levels. That, that was a real boon for the retail space. Now we're seeing that somewhat normalized. But what we're seeing is, I guess, the second wave of that, which is now everyone's spending more on services. So people are going out there, going out to dinner more, traveling, (laughs) domestic holidays. I can tell you my wife and I are you know, recently booked a trip to North Queensland yeah. over the winter to escape um, to escape the cold. And finding accommodation is actually, you know, really tough. Obviously, everyone is, without being able to go to Bali or Thailand or somewhere else, we're all stuck here. We're all we're all heading up north for the for the warmth. So we are definitely seeing signs that consumers are spending um, spending that cash. In terms of what really drives them to continue that, I think it's um it's a combination of factors. It's confidence, which is around record levels. So that's a that's yeah. a tick. 
and it's also that yeah the the wealth effect so it's house prices going up people feeling more wealthy feeling like they can treat themselves they can splurge you know unfortunately um, there's been some issues that have stood in the way of that one of the most correlated areas of consumption to wealth effect is spending on cars Mm. Now there's a global shortfall of cars because of the shortage of computer chips. And so even though there's strong demand for, for new cars and used cars, we actually haven't seen dealers be able to keep up to that. Mm. If, you're, if you're not familiar, you know, talking to people who are looking to buy a car at the moment, in some cases you're waiting two, three, four, five months to take delivery, whereas normally you'd probably be able to you know, maybe get in a couple of weeks at worst. So that's one thing that's actually standing in the way of um, consumers spending their money, these supply chain issues we've seen as a result of COVID. And I mean, just keeping our borders shut, I mean, they may be shut for a year. I mean, the government's optimistic that they may open next year, but I mean, let's say they don't open up for a couple of years or three years. Is this really going to impact our economy? Or do you think that, you know, like Veronica was saying, that we'll spend the money on local tourism, we'll spend the money on local services, and we'll be fine, I guess? Well, I, th- I think overall we'll be okay, but it's not an even, um, an even outcome. If you look at the tourism sector as a whole, Australians actually spend more overseas than international tourists spent here. In 2019, before COVID hit, Australians spent about $60 billion on international travel. International tourists spent about $40 billion here. So in a purely just looking at tourism, that's a net gain of $20 billion a year. The problem is that Australian tourists and international tourists don't necessarily <laughs> go to the same places. <laughs> yeah, city so, versus country. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Regional New South Wales is booming because we're all, everyone in Sydney is heading up to the south and north coast, going to the Blue Mountains, et cetera. But, you know, tourism in Sydney is is still struggling a bit, the operators here, because, you know, you're not necessarily going to do a bridge climb or go into a souvenir shop as a local. Yeah. So that's one of the issues. The other one is that there's a lot of, there's other parts of the economy that rely on international travel that's not tourism. So education is the biggest one. Education prior to COVID was our, our third largest export. Mm. And we've basically seen that the tap turned off there. Students are still, who are still in the country are still continuing their studies, but they're gradually leaving or completing their studies. And while there are some students who are taking up distance options, it's certainly uh, not the same economic benefit as people actually moving to Australia to study that three or four d- year degree, uh, renting out apartments in inner cities, going out and spending, and also working, you know, often kind of some of these jobs in cafes and hospitality, which is a sector that's really struggling to find employees at the moment. So that's probably the area where, where you're looking at that's going to be more impacted by the closed borders is education and also those areas that love the labour market that are particularly reliant on those international students for workers. So any new markets that have been created through the border closures, I expect, do you think that I mean, I guess, A, can you highlight any? And B, would they be sustainable or are they sort of temporary? Well, I think some of the the new changes, I guess, it's it's a combination of border closures and COVID and work from home. And as, as you're both, I'm sure, well aware, you know, we've kind of got this this trend of the sea change that's, I think, <laughs> really had a fire lit under it with people looking to to move close to Sydney, but a little bit further out than they they might have normally looked at doing pre-COVID. And I think that's probably something that continues. I think people looking to those nearby regional areas as a kind of urban adjacent areas probably continues. And I think tourism to those areas also remains fairly solid. I guess the question is, you know, how how long till the the world starts looking a bit more normal is really going to be the determinant there. You know, if it's in 12 months time, everyone's vaccinated, 
it and it's all fine and the borders can be flung open. I suspect there's going to be a lot of Australians who are jumping on a plane and tr- trying to get over to Europe or the US or, or Southeast Asia. If it's a slower grind and only some countries are opening up and it's kind of limited and you might have to go into quarantine when you get home, then um, you know we'll probably see some of that boost to domestic tourism continue for a little bit longer. I mean, what's your view on Aussies returning home, you know, speaking to friends in London and other parts of the world? I mean, a lot of them do want to come back. It's just the, the complexities of trying to get that sorted is, is hard and there's only limited spots. I mean, do you foresee a lot of Aussies moving home and that'll boost our migration numbers and, you know, basically catch up the population growth that we've lost? I think we are seeing quite a few, but as you, as you suggest, you know, it is it is a challenge, whether it's even just getting on a flight or in a lot of cases, getting a job. You know, if you're a high flying executive working in finance or law or something else in, in the UK or the US, it's not necessarily easy to find a comparable job in Australia. Yeah, I think where people have been able to find those employment opportunities here, they've been quite happy to move back. I know in my own organization, we've had a lot of senior leaders join us from the from London, from Hong Kong, from New York. And, you know, it's really been, I think COVID has been the opportunity for them where they've, you know, they've really enjoyed and loved working overseas, but the opportunity to come back home to a good role and the lure of more or less COVID-free life in Sydney mm-hmm. versus life in London or New York at the moment is has made it much more attractive. So it's been a good opportunity, I think, for um, for Australia to get back some of our, our lost talent because generally we, we often see some of our, our best labour move overseas because there's just greater opportunities there. I do think that'll continue a bit. Um, I also suspect once borders do reopen, we're going to see uh, strong levels of skilled migration return. I think this has made Australia... Uh, a relatively attra- a more attractive place. The key thing is going to be, I guess, you know, when that happens. The government's talking about now, not till 2022, the borders reopen. The big challenge, I think, politically is um, it's very hard to bring back uh, or to to bring in skilled migrants if you still have Australians waiting for the for the flights home. Mm. And so you really need to clear that backlog of residents and citizens who want to come back mm. before you can start opening the door to new migrants. I wonder. I mean, just. You know, can you replicate on a global scale what's sort of happening on a local scale? And and I'll give you an example. Say quite a lot of people apparently are moving to Brisbane where they have had, you know, bigger roles in, in Melbourne or Sydney, you know, more high-paid roles. And because of work from home, the ability to work remotely, they said, you know what, I don't even need to be in the same city anymore. I, obviously, they're in the same time zone for most of the year or for half of the year, but they're only an hour difference the rest of the year. But Will people actually start to say, well, actually, I can keep my job in London. I just will live in Australia and sort of work odd hours or, you know, do you think that that will happen? Well, I, in some cases, you may you may see things like ha- that happen. I mean, I think certainly in the, um, you know, in the tech companies, we're seeing talk of yeah. work from home being permanent and allowing people to work where they want. If you look at in the US, there's definitely the same kind of regional shifts that are happening in Australia going on. I think I saw recently that the fastest growing housing market in the US was some small lakeside town in the Midwest where, um, you know, you basically had a lot of people leaving the big cities and moving to these regional communities because one, they could work from home and two, they had a lot more freedom, a lot more outdoor space and they just got a lot more for their money. So I think you do see some of those shifts continue. I think there will be a push from big 
businesses and also from from governments and cities to bring people back into the CBD. Obviously, you don't want to lose that vibrancy and people going into the city to work also supports a lot of jobs. But I think we've definitely see a shift that we're not going to go back to the old way. We're not going to go back to everyone working the nine to five in the CBD. There's going to be the new normal will be a bit of a hybrid balance where a few days a week, you might work from home. A few days a week, you're in the office. And if you're you know, particularly skilled and good at your role and you've got a good relationship with your company, then you can probably work from anywhere if you um, if you want to. So I think there will be some opportunities for that, but it's probably a bit more select. Yeah, I guess if that was more, I mean, because in Brisbane, for instance, that's led to an increase in house prices. So that there's a real globalization of that, then obviously that brings more higher incomes into cities that may not have had them before. So, but if you say it's more select, then it's not certainly going to be a widespread movement to push prices up even further, perhaps. I mean, anecdotally, we've got a client who was earning a lot of money in the US in trading, basically, and came move back to Australia just around COVID and got kids and work said, we don't want to lose you. And they basically allowed him to continue and salary hasn't changed, et cetera. So, you know, his hours are a bit different because he's, you know, he's working to US hours and, you know, it's maybe a bit early nights and early mornings sometimes. But yeah, that's sort of an example where the talent, you know, they don't want to lose these good people. And if they want to go home, potentially they'll keep paying them. Yeah. Carlos, I guess there's a huge opportunity for the Australian government to go down the renewable section, which I know you guys do a bit of consulting around. But, you know, what's your sort of view on the government's attitude to actually embrace that opportunity when it, it does make a lot of sense to electrify everything and all the other things? So are we being optimistic to see some massive change to government's view on those things or we just, yeah, we've got to wait a long, lot longer? I think what has been pre-announced in the budget looks like, you know, it is a, a, a positive change. We're seeing some investment for carbon capture and storage, for hydrogen, for renewables, but it's probably, you know, a little bit a little bit smaller than I think a lot of people would like to see and um, that probably you'd argue we need to see. I think what's really driving the change is not the government, but it's just the technology and it's, and its businesses. Businesses are much more, you know, are getting pressure from investors, but also from their own boards wanting to be more environmentally responsible and active on climate change. And they're really leading the way here. And I said technology, the fact that, you know, it's it's now cheaper to install renewable energy than it is to build a new coal-fired power plant. So the private sector is just not investing in those old technologies the way they would have previously. The other thing that's really going to, I think, drag us to the rest of the world is what's going on globally. In Europe and the US, they're both talking about the idea of potentially bringing in carbon import taxes, where essentially they would tax higher emissions countries' imports uh, on the basis of how much extra carbon they produce and something like that, which the government is fighting or is arguing against. Would um, have a big impact on, you know, I guess, you know, dragging businesses um, towards lower emissions. Whether or not there is a is a policy response to support that. <laughs> the government is so reactive on this. It's like, you know, they haven't wanted to do anything for so long, <laughs> and it's like they've been forced to because everyone else is just taking matters in their own hands. And I love it, as in business and and you know other countries. I mean, it was it was mortifying. I mean, we're going sort of down the tangent here, but, you know, Scott Morrison's presentation to Biden's forum thing was mortifying. How embarrassing, you know, getting up and saying we don't need a target. We'll just, you know, muddle our own way. Anyway, let's not divert. <laughs> we, let's not go down that path. 
If you like what you're hearing here, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars, please. Every review helps make it easier for other people to find us and hear what our amazing guests have to say. We love hearing your questions and we're planning more listener Q&A episodes. Please send your questions in. You can send them via the website, which is theelephantintheroom.com.au or directly via email to questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au. I'm curious, you talk to a lot of agents and you you get out there and actually talk to people on the ground and gauge what's happening in the property market. What have you been hearing? Uh, A few different things depending on where where you look. Starting in Sydney, I think what I'm hearing is particularly in the in the east and the inner ring, it feels like things have reached a bit of a, a peak or a plateau where up until March you saw just that rampant, crazy price growth to the extent that even the agents were surprised and were shocked by it, you know, 20% in six months, that sort of stuff. And they're now kind of saying that, look, it's bringing more supply online. You had people who were sitting on their hands, were a bit unsure about trading in this sort of market, the risk of, you know, you sell and not being able to buy. And the price growth we saw was just so much that they said, you know what, screw it, let's sell and we'll figure it, figure the rest out later. We've made so much money on this house. <laughs> we just want to take advantage of that timing. And now it feels like things are, have reached a bit of a plateau where they're, where they're slowing. Um, still a very solid housing market. But I think, you know, that supply coming on board and people maybe reassessing where the prices are has led to a bit of a leveling out of the momentum. In the West, I think you're still seeing a bit more uplift coming and that's being driven by still that kind of, I guess, that COVID shift where people are, you know, Know, maybe reassessing where they want to live. They might have been living in a inner city apartment and they've realized, you know what, if I'm working from home two days a week, that commute into the city for an hour plus isn't so bad. And we can actually get a nice family home out in the western suburbs. So you are still seeing some some support there. Along um, in uh, Melbourne and Brisbane, I think we're still seeing the, the strong recovery in prices or a strong kind of lift in prices continuing, particularly in Melbourne, given the lockdowns kind of delayed the recovery there. The other interesting shift down there is that I think the lockdowns really scared or shifted perceptions of a lot of people. And they're seeing really strong shifting to the nearby lifestyle areas. So areas like the Mornington Peninsula, reportedly absolutely on fire. You know, you're seeing people sell up in inner ring suburbs and move to those lifestyle areas where you're still close enough to the city if you need to be there, but you're outside of that ring of steel. And, you know, if restrictions were to come in again, (laughs) you're free to go about your business. And then in Perth, I think the market there is absolutely booming. So it's just funny on that with Victorians, a lot of people that I've been speaking to saying, you know, when you are restricted to be able to move within a five kilometre radius of your home, then where you live becomes so much more important. And I think that's probably leading to that. If you're not, if you don't have a good park within 500, you know, five kilometres or a beach or or whatever it is that, that's outdoors and, and is pleasant to be in, then you've, they felt very, very hamstrung and, and contained versus those that lived in those in those areas where there's got uh, greater outdoor areas, and and I think that that's so fascinating to think that that's then leading to more of a, a exodus there because of that. 
Yeah, I think you're absolutely right there. I think that it being stuck within 5Ks for months on end has really led people to, I think, reassess where they want to be and, and what kind of amenity they want around them, as well as that working from home shift where, you know, if previously you only really got to enjoy your neighborhood on the weekend, now if you can enjoy it an extra two days a week, you might decide that you want those extra, you know, mm. that, you know you're willing to pay up a bit more to be near parkland or near the beach or just somewhere where you've got a bit more green space around you. Perth is probably the strongest one we're seeing at the moment, talking to developers and agents there. You know, it's a combination of mining is absolutely booming. They've handled COVID quite well. You've got massive subsidies from the federal and state government, which are covering in some cases, you know, 25, 30% of the cost of a new house. Mm. And you're just seeing after, you know, the better part of a decade in the doldrums, you're seeing the Perth property market really take off very strongly. And that's, you know, a big shift from where from the story that, that we've seen for the last 10 years where there was always talk of Perth finally entering recovery, but they just didn't didn't manage to get there. Now with iron ore over $200 a tonne, you're just seeing a lot of money flow into both individuals, but also the government's coffers. So that's probably going to continue in the near term. So clearly that's still quite vulnerable though, right? Well, I think that in terms of the exposure to commodities, mm. um, look, there still are, but the thing is the risk of iron ore falling back down to 20 or $30 a tonne is very, very low from here. The risk of it falling back to you know 150 or $120 a tonne, that's pretty real. But even at those levels, that's a, a massive positive compared to where we were over the la- better part of the last decade. So I guess it's all about the risks around it. And I think, yes, there's some downside risk, but even in that downside scenario, it's still looking pretty good. I also think the thing is that they've kind of been underbuilding for a long time. They We saw this big spike in construction around the mining boom. And then there was a huge glut of supply in the market, particularly for apartments and house and land on the suburb, in the kind of the mm. outer suburbs. And what we've seen now is we've seen a lot of that rapidly taken up. We've seen people, as soon as Home Builder was announced, you saw a flood of people rushing out to the suburbs and buying blocks of land that developers in some cases had had sitting around for sale for years. Absolutely. I mean, that's, uh, you know, finally, we've got a bit of demand out to those sort of areas. I've got clients with places in Perth that, you know, bought them maybe five, 10 years ago, and they're still underwater, but they've been waiting for some type of demand shift because the supply has just been sort of you know, weighing on the market there. You said you've been speaking to some developers as well, though. We, we don't really talk too much to them, but um, you know, what are they sort of seeing in terms of pre-sales, especially from investors? It's it's very much a, a bifurcated market between houses and apartments. On the housing side, they're still seeing pretty strong demand even after home builder expired. So you're kind of seeing that buoyancy in the housing, in the new housing market continue even without the subsidies. For investors, they are definitely seeing inquiries pick up and they are seeing some purchases, particularly for products like townhouses where it's a little bit more affordable than a house, but better than an apartment from it, you know, given the outlook. So they are definitely seeing more interest there, which is a change from what we've seen. Where they're still struggling is, um, is apartments. You know, There are some projects which are, are going ahead and are seeing good take up, but they're certainly few and far between compared to what we saw over that 2015 to 2017 period where developers would sell off, you know, a whole parcel of two or 300 apartments in the space of a few hours. So that's really the part of the market that's still missing in action in terms of new housing. How short are people's memories? I think in some cases they can be quite short. I think we look back at the aftermath of the the last 
housing boom and the issues around valuations coming in below settlement price, yep. building quality issues, flammable cladding, et cetera. And I think there was a there was a realization from Australians that oh actually buying off the plan apartments isn't aren't actually a great investment. Um if you if they didn't know that already. I know that you two are big advocates against uh against uh off the plan apartments. And I think in general um you know there are a lot of issues there. But I think what's starting to override that is affordability and FOMO. We're seeing price growth to such an extent that people are being priced out of the house market. So in some cases apartments and new new apartments might be the only you know the only option for them, and they've got that we've got that real strong fear of missing out coming into the market again. The kind the kind that we saw in 2016 mm. that led a lot of people down that off the plan path because it gave you an opportunity to, to buy something that you couldn't afford just yet, but that you would be able to afford in a year's time when settlement came. There's also that lack of competition, and that becomes appealing to buyers when they're missing out over and over again and they just go, oh, I just want to buy something that's easy. Oh, that's it. Great. Thanks. There's five of them to choose from. Excellent. I'll have that one. And then the relief of just sort of, the, you know, the the search and the agony of it all being over with, that's immediate, but then the real problem then begins. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's going to drive a lot of investment lending. It's not really true investment lending. Someone's got a house and, you know, they've paid that mortgage off and they've got lots of equity and they're and got great cash flow and they say, oh, why don't we buy an investment property for our future? A lot of that investment lending, I think, will come from people who would have been home buyers that got frustrated with the journey, prices have run on them, they're not willing to compromise on location or the type of property that they want. And they say, well, let's just buy an investment property instead of a house. And you know, in the last couple of weeks, I've had to talk a few people out of that where that fear and that frustration of, of missing has is, is led them to, well, I'll just buy an investment property. And it's really dangerous because they take their Sydney Rose glasses on and then look for someone who's going to advise them on investment properties. And, you know, we know that there's no shortage of people willing to sell the dream, I guess. Absolutely. I think, you know, in my conversations with with real estate agents, I'm hearing uh, that there's been a real shift in the type of investor they're seeing now. It's not the traditional property investor. It's it's very much those higher net worth um, households who have quite a bit of equity built up in their in their family home and then looking to um, unlock some of that and take advantage of the of the rise in property prices um, either because they're happy where they are and they and they don't need to move but they just want to I guess you know ride the ride the boom or because they've um, they just can't afford to move where they want to and they want to try and take advantage of the the current environment some housing measures were already uh, announced regarding the budget. What's uh, What are they, I guess, and um, what's your view on them? Well, so I guess what we should say is we're actually recording this the day before the budget is released. The day, the morning of the budget, so. <laughs> we won't be releasing this episode until a couple of weeks' time, so this is going to be quite interesting to see how good your crystal ball is. <laughs> <laughs> well, the government, as, as has become um, the the tradition, the government has leaked a lot, of, um, a lot of policies ahead of the budget, so we know a few things that are going to be coming out on housing tonight. Um, so they, they've expanded um, the first home loan deposit scheme, which allows buyers to buy with a 5% deposit without paying lender's mortgage insurance. So they've got another 10,000 places on that. Um, they've also increased the um, super saver scheme, which allows you to put in um, $30,000 into super and then take it out for your deposit picking up the tax benefit on the way. So they've made that, they've increased that to 50,000. And they've also brought in 10,000 places for um, the family home guarantee, which will allow single um, parent families to purchase a house with a 2% deposit instead of five. So, um, an even smaller deposit there. 
There's a lot of criticism of that one. What are, what are your thoughts? Look, on, on, the, on the whole, um, I don't think the policies are going to make a, a massive difference overall. I think definitely for some individuals who are really struggling to scrape together a deposit, it does, it can be the, um, you know, that little bit that gets them across the line. Um, but, you know, you're talking about still in for the first home loan deposit scheme, about 20,000 places. Um, in the last 12 months, we've probably seen over 150 or 200,000 first home buyers. So it's a relatively small share of that. Um, I also purely, I guess, from a risk point of view, I see those five and 2% deposit loans as being quite risky and um, yeah. in a really hot housing market. I personally wouldn't want to be buying with an LVR of 98% risk overpaying and potentially ending up in negative equity quite quickly. I don't think house prices are going to fall in the near term, but it just doesn't give you much buffer if things um, do go south. And um, I think, I guess, from the bank's perspective, they're not too concerned because it's guaranteed by the government. They've effectively got that lender's mortgage insurance, but it does leave households quite exposed if things were to change. And do you think there'll be like an apartment builder sort of policy coming out in 2021 where they're uh, trying to stimulate that part of the market because you said that's very sluggish? Yeah, so they, um, Michael Sucker, the housing minister, did um, say a couple of weeks ago at the UDIA conference that they it's definitely something they're looking at. We haven't heard anything um, that, you know, any policies being whispered, talking to people in industry and looking through um, prior budget proposals from the, from the property sector. What seems to be the most likely route is um, potentially another sort of first home buyer grant specifically targeted at apartments. So yeah. home builder didn't really do much for apartments because of the time pressure that was built into it. Um, or the other option could be um, looking at supporting the build to rent sector. So we're starting to see this new type of, um, of home building come up, the build to rent, mm. where developers build an apartment and then they, um, it's managed, uh, they manage renting those apartments out. So they kind of maintain it long term. They usually provide extra services. The rents are usually a bit higher because you're getting um, a more premium experience and product. Um, the big issue for that is the tax implications, is the fact that um, the withholding taxes. Yeah is quite high. And so in a lot of cases, particularly for foreign investors, um, it doesn't make sense. There's been a lot of lobbying on behalf of the um, the industry to try and change some of those taxes so that we can see that sector grow more. Indeed, um, if you look overseas, um, it's a massive driver of construction in the US and Canada, in the UK, in, in many parts of Europe, um, mm. where the household landlords are not the norm like they are in Australia. So that's definitely another area that they could look at supporting. It is interesting because we interviewed, um, oh, I can't remember his name, but he was uh, general manager of Mervac Build to Rent uh, oh, a while ago, back before COVID because we interviewed him in the studio. <laughs> and um, it, it, he said that one of the big uh, hurdles is the land tax. Yeah. That, um, and that's, but that's the state government thing. And, of course, you know, I'm fully in favour of encouraging that I think that's a, a great thing for governments to be um, supporting because then you, that's being built for institutional uh, owners and you, you can expect the quality to be better. It's more yeah. incentive to build a better building. Exactly. I, I, can't, I cannot agree more. I think if the developer knows they're going to retain some ownership stake of this apartment in you know, and have that in 5, 10, 20 years' time, they're going to build it to a higher standard than if they know they're not going to have any residual exposure within 12 months. Mm. 
So there's a lot of talk just a few months ago around regulation and macroprudential sort of uh, limits put on lending. Um, what's your thoughts? If if your sort of belief that maybe the the strongest growth in the you know the inner rings, let's say, or growth does slow down just naturally with more supply, do you think there's still going to be the pressure on the government to sort of try to put restrictions around lending and try to slow things down, um, even if rates stay low? Um, yeah, I think that if if we see growth naturally moderate, then we probably don't. Then there's probably less risk of seeing um, any kind of macroprudential tightening. In terms of what we know from from the regulators, um, APRA and the RBA have been pretty clear that they're not worried about house prices on their own. Um, they're worried about the riskier types of lending and making sure that lending standards remain sound. Um, so the key thing that APRA is watching, who's the banking regulator, is um, basically what's going on for those riskier types of lending. So things like investor lending, um, interest-only loans, higher LVR lending, so where people are borrowing more than 90% of the value, and also high debt-to-income lending, where people are borrowing more than six times their income. And all those measures, while they've increased recently, um, they're not at levels yet that would have them concerned. Um, and if you look at things like investor credit growth and interest-only loans, they're still well, well below where they were when they intervened last time in 2015. So investor lending is picking up, but it's a much from a much lower base um, for credit growth than it was back then. Um, and it's still, you know, if you look at even on the loans growth numbers, the numbers we got out for um, for March last week for investor lending were really strong. They're up almost, I think, 12% on the month. Um, but investor lending is still down 20 or 30% from where it was in 2015. So while owner-occupied lending and total lending is at record highs, so they're, they're a much smaller share of the market now than they were um, were last time they intervened. So I think probably for the moment they'd be content to sit on their hands. But if we get into you know late this year, early next year, and we're seeing investor lending pick up, we're seeing more high, high LVR loans, um, there is a risk they could come in to try and cool things a bit. Yeah, to put in context there, so I think from memory, investor lending back in 2015 was around 55% of total lending. Would that be right? Yeah, so in, in New South Wales in particular, we saw investor loans were more than half of all loans. So mm. that's what got APRA really concerned is that they view those loans as being, you know, that that, um, that sort of lending as being inherently more speculative. And they usually, their view is that investors are more likely to to sell in a in a downturn. And so that it just creates more, um, more risk within the financial system. And then now as a proportion of total lending? Uh, it's probably around, I think it picked up to around 30% again, which is in line with long-term averages. If you think about yeah. the Australian housing market as a whole, roughly a third of us own outright, a third of us own with a mortgage and a third of us rent. So about a third yeah. of the housing stock is owned by investors. So it's in line. <laughs> yeah, roughly. Right, it was over 50. I think it's come right back. It was in the 20s and now it's probably back to that 30s. And um, we do need investment lending uh, because that's also creating accommodation, rental accommodation, especially if in a few years' time we start to open up the borders, which is naturally what the government's going to want to do, um, is grow our immigration dramatically. Carlos, I guess a bit of a difficult or maybe not so difficult, but what's sort of the headwinds? I mean, it's been quite positive, to be honest. And um, you know, what are some of the big things over the short term that we just don't know about the Australian economy that could really have a huge impact? But also longer term, like structurally, what are the big problems that we're creating for ourselves? Um, I mean, in, in the short term, I think one of the biggest issues is just our, our trading relationship with China. That's obviously been been quite troubled. They're our biggest um, trading partner 
Um, what happens there? Look, I don't have a crystal ball. I'm not sure. Um, but <laughs> that's that's a big. Um, that's certainly a risk that it's worth being cognizant of. Um, we've already seen, obviously, action on on some of our exports. Unfortunately, iron ore, which is our largest export, um, is still flowing freely into China, and I don't expect that's going to change anytime soon. Um, I think the other the other key thing is really the the vaccine rollout and the opening of international borders. Um, the vaccine rollout's been going well behind schedule, and that's going to delay obviously any return to normal international travel. And I think that's that's the risk is that even though the economy is is doing very well, um, just being a domestically focused economy at the moment, the risk is that as the stimulus is withdrawn, as that um, kind of pent up cash and pent up demand works its way through the system, not having that international um, exposure is going to see those parts of the economy that are reliant on international um, international arrivals, international tourism, international education, atrophy. And, you know, if we lose them, we might not get them um, back to the same extent. So I think those are probably the two big things. The other one is, you know, just around the, the housing market, if things get too hot, if regulators decide to step in. Um, but I think in the near term, that's probably um, a pretty small chance at the moment. Maybe long term, like, you know, say 10, 20, 30 years time where you think the Australian economy is really missing a trick here or this is going to, we're going to create uh, too much service base and not enough manufacturing or too commodity driven, you know. Is there anything sort of at, at a macro level that you think that we, we need to be really thinking about? The biggest issue over the last decade has really been productivity growth. Productivity growth in Australia and, and also, to be honest, in most of the world has been pretty pretty poor. Um Hopefully, part of the solution to that is this um, pickup in business investment that we're hoping for. If you do see that, that should support productivity growth ahead. Um, the other one that I, you know, personally worry about longer term is kind of what um, housing affordability means for the future of our cities. Um, mm. You know, and intergenerational inequality and things like that. If you if you think about it on a long term um, perspective, yep. where uh, essential service workers who are servicing the, those you know very high value parts of our city going to live? Are we going to be bussing in nurses into Prince of Wales Hospital um, in Randwick um, in the future, or, or are we going to be creating affordable housing for essential workers? I'm not sure, but that's that's a big problem that we need to figure out how best to deal with in in the long term for our cities. So how, how do other global cities, you know, expensive cities like New York and London and even Hong Kong deal with that? Well, um, some cities like like New York have pretty extensive um, affordable housing initiatives. So in a lot of cases when new developments are built, a certain portion of those will have to be um, rent controlled or affordable rentals. And that ensures that there's, um, you know, sufficient housing within the kind of metro area for those for those workers who um, aren't getting paid as much and but who are essential for the functioning of the city um, other cities I'm, I'm honestly not so sure what they do in Hong Kong but I think there is also quite a large social social housing program there and that's probably something that's been arguably missing in Australia for the last couple of years since the since the GFC um, when we had that boom in spending on um, on government housing we've seen um pretty pretty weak delivery of, of public housing um there is some more in the pipeline um and there is a bit more spending in the budget um for that um but i think that's probably something that we need to figure out a better way of delivering and that's another area where we could potentially see reforms to support the apartment sector if we could um, maybe see this you know 
co, um, I guess, co-development where the government's footing some of the bill for private developers to build a mix of private and affordable housing. And that's probably something that, um, you know, we really need to see more of uh, to to ensure that our cities remain vibrant and, um, you know, can get those essential service workers where they need to be. That's a build to rent as a solution there as well as part of that. Yeah. Overall, uh, you know, part of that build to rent is a big part is affordable, say, for example, in near hospitals or, you know, near key employment hubs. Carlos, have you got a property Dumbo for us? Uh, yes, actually, I do, I do have one from when I, when my wife and I were, were looking at, at houses uh, last year um, before we bought ours. We were at an auction in uh, an inner west suburb and it was um, it was fairly slow going. There was one very keen couple who were in the lead. Um, at one stage, the agent went in to um, the, the auction hadn't been called. They'd been going once, going twice. The agent went in to confer with the the vendors, um, and then he announced that the he announced the property was was now on the market, and a new bidder came in. The previous leader at this stage um, basically threw that threw their hat in. They, oh, sorry, um, threw the towel in. They decided that no, this is unfair. We should have won it. it you, I thought you called it for us. Um, you, you know, <laughs> you, I thought it was, you know, it was already ours already. And um, they basically refused to bid. So they got one one bid from the new uh, from the new entrant, and no reply from the other bidder. And in the end, um, I think the vendor got a lot less than they were hoping for. The agent didn't get um, the bidding war they were hoping for. And the potential buyer who was in the lead missed out. So I think there were a couple of Dumbos in that situation. A number of them. What month was that? Do you remember? Uh, That was June. So that was right kind of at the bottom of the market. And I suspect that young couple, um, if they haven't bought something already, may be kicking themselves for for giving up that (laughs) chance. And also not just not understanding what happens, you know, not maybe they'd never been yeah. to another auction. Maybe they'd never seen it. That's what auctioneers do. They bluff. They try to flush out, you know, other bidders. It's hilarious, really, that they then jam their feet. Yeah. They're feeding, or maybe they were a stooge. Maybe they were a dummy bidder, and that was always part well, of it. Well, our, our guess was that, um, yeah, they didn't really know what was going on with it's probably their first auction. Mm. They didn't necessarily know how it works. But I also think the agent um, could have done more to to kind of talk to them and to manage mm. them. Instead, yeah. the agent was just focusing on getting the new bidder in. They weren't worried about keeping the current bidder in. And so in the <laughs> end, they, they got one, but they mm. lost the other. And of course, in a two horse race, if one horse pulls out, then um, it's not going to be a great outcome for the vendor. Oh yeah. Yeah. God. We've got on the face there for everyone, right? Cause they're going, well, we've got two, we know we've got this other invest. They wouldn't have obviously put it on the market. They knew that they had probably made an offer prior to auction, maybe more than what it's selling for. Yeah, um, my, now so they probably they were very confident that they'd have two people bidding, um, but <laughs> they obviously uh, one didn't understand the rules and rules of engagement. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm glad you didn't say uh, choice of mortgage broker there. By the way, Carl. <laughs> <laughs> no, we had we had a very very good mortgage broker. <laughs> Am I guessing there might be a prior relationship with you two? <laughs> I was actually talking about auction dumbos. I was at an auction last weekend, and and we were actually registered. There was uh, five registered parties, including us, so not huge. And it was for a client who wanted to go for this property. I actually didn't like the property, but some of our clients do go for properties that, that I don't like. That's okay. Um, as long as they've got open eyes as to why. Anyway, we had we had a fairly good limit for it. We should have bought that property really. And so I opened it um, at more than what they've been quoting. They've been quoting 1.6. 
throughout this campaign. And I watched the other bidders and all the rest of it. And I thought I'd made a calculated opening of 1.73, I think it was. And that was around really where we started to see value when we'd done our pricing research. So I thought, look, that that hopefully will be knock out at least one or two of the others. Anyway, the guy that took me on, he had actually rocked up uh, just before me and he had tried to register for his daughter. He didn't have any of the documentation. It's the first time we'd seen the property. The daughter lives overseas. Um, he's just decided he's going to bid. Uh, yeah. Then they're online. They're trying to get um, authorities signed up over over internet, et cetera, et cetera. They managed to do that in that that uh, half hour prior to the auction. So he's the guy that that bids against me and I'm bidding, I've, I chose seven as my number and I was sort of bidding in either a seven or I might be a 17 or a 27 and sort of mixing it up and down and all the rest of it. He, he gets to 1.9 and I've put in another a seven on top of that. He says, nah, she can have it. I had a little bit more in my gas tank not a huge amount. And that was fairly big money. I thought that was that was a very good price for that house. And given that they were quoting 1.6. And so then the auctioneer starts their spill because you could actually tell it wasn't over the reserve. And I could tell that because of the language that the auctioneer was using. And he, he started talking about, well, you know, you will be the the first right of refusal, the first right of negotiation, et cetera, et cetera. So you're using all this language. And I'm like, you're kidding me. This is not on actually over reserve yet. The agent comes up to us and starts trying to G us up to bid more. And I just turn around and say, look, you need to go away. You know, we've got our instruction. Oh, sorry. And then then this guy comes back. So we're at 1907. Then this guy comes back while this is going on. He then bids 195, 1950 on top of our bid. First time he's ever seen the property, you know, like for his daughter, just just comes in out of nowhere with this this big bid on top. <laughs> and I'm like, I went, well, you can have it, you know. And so then it's still not over reserve. And then the agent comes up and starts trying to hassle us. I said, go away. We are out. And that I cannot believe you're not over the reserve has not been met. And we are now $350,000 over your quote. You know, that's two hundred thousand over. It's uh, one hundred ninety thousand over what's legal for you to be quoting. Um, you know, it, it was just ridiculous. Anyway, the guy actually, they finally got the reserve dropped and they sold it to him. They realised nobody else was going to bid. But um, he turned to Rachel, who works for me, and sort of as he's sort of walking in to sign up, he says, "Oh God, I think I pay too much." <laughs> <laughs> You're kidding me? Nah, really. I was just madness that people, it's almost like walking the dog and just decide to buy a house. Just nuts. Yeah, we're seeing that at the moment, unfortunately, uh, clients that are still, you know, fear of missing out. Maybe they've sold something. Just this morning I'm trying to calm a client down that's sold and um, you know, they're out of the market now and so they've got the settlement in, you know, eight, ten weeks. Then buying in a new suburb. They've seen a property. They're in love with it. Um and, you know, it's ultimately they just want to get a deal done, right, because they potentially could be homeless in, you know, six to eight weeks' time and, you know, you're already very emotional at that time and they haven't seen that many properties and it's easy to just go and buy the first property to solve that pain. But is that the right property for them? Is it the good value? Is it, you know, et cetera? It's hard to get that um, those reference points when you're very new to the market. And so um, and clients buying without contract checks and building in pests and, and coming to us after and things like that and, um it's rampant when the market's sort of hot. Mm. Carl, that's been amazing. So much great gold there for, for our listeners. Really appreciate you coming on. 
Thanks very much for having me. It was great. Thank you. We want to make you a better elephant rider, and this week's elephant rider training is... Let's talk about this idea of a rising tide lifts all ships. You know, I've heard a lot of uh, property experts say this. I hear a lot of agents say this. And and certainly when I was a sales agent, I used to believe it too, that, you know, if you bought a property on a main road in a suburb, that, um, you know, you'd still do okay because the whole suburb rises and so therefore yours would rise as well and you'd get it for a bit of a bargain on the way in. When I became a buyer's agent, I started really, you know, really investigating that and really looking deeper into it. And I guess what I'm distressed by at the moment is I'm seeing and hearing a lot of agents and, as I said, even some some experts saying that, you know, it's okay to make those sort of compromises to buy in those those really poor assets fundamentally, because ultimately, you know, the gap isn't that different. It's not that bad. And however, it is. But there are times, if you time the market perfectly, you can maybe make a real windfall, but you have to Mm. know what you're doing and you have to absolutely understand the market and the movements of the market and the signs that the market gives just before it's going to turn. And I tell you what, I used to, you know, when I was sort of just looking at this academically, I go, right, well, I could definitely see that properties such as on main roads, they don't go up in long periods of time. They they underperform compared to other properties in a given suburb. But there are short periods of time within that where they will outperform and severely underperform. And so I used to think for a little while, I was thinking, you know what, in a downturn, I'm going to go running out buying all the dumps, all the stuff that nobody will touch because in a hot market they'll go up disproportionate amount and so then I'll flog them. And it sounds great in theory and <laughs> if you look at isolated sections of um, time, you know, these properties can be seen as outperformers, but they're in reality over long periods of time, which is what we should be thinking about with property, they are absolute underperformers. And if you don't know how to read the market perfectly, which I will guarantee you don't, because even I don't, then, you know, it's a it's a folly or it's a real risky uh, strategy to try to be buying and selling properties on main roads or other highly compromised properties. Yeah, we had a client literally yesterday trying to buy property that was backing onto a train. And um, I, I kind of, you know, through an email, I just said, look, you know, these are the real concerns here. You're going to be paying a, a lot of money for that because the market's hot right now. Um, and there's other issues with the property, but just focusing on that issue. Um, and it, it really, what matters is once you buy that property, it's when you sell that property will determine um, you know, your financial gain, I guess, and you're going to be going in at a high price, you are going to underperform the better streets. And what you've now done is lost control of the sell date, because if the, you want to sell it in the market, when the market's not hot, um, you know, it's a 2018, the markets, all compromised properties are really getting discounted, no one's going to compromise, you know, for that sort of property. Um, and you just don't know when you're going to sell, and that's the risk. Um, so you may overpay on the purchase because you had to buy a poor asset in a hot market, but then if you have to sell a poor asset in a poor market, you can be absolutely smashed and you can get stuck because you can't sell it in that market. You've got to wait for a better market, and then when you wait for the better market, the property that you want to upgrade into grows on you. So just be very careful doing, uh, you know, buying those compromised properties at big prices because you lose control of um, 
the sale date really. It's such a good way to phrase it actually, you lose control of the sale date. I'm going to remember that and steal that if that's okay. Um, I, you know, I've spoken to Megan Wells a bit about this in Brisbane. It's the, same, the similar vein. She's saying that properties that are known to be flood affected are now not selling for a big enough discount against those that are known not to be flood affected. In some cases, they're selling for the same price. And they're exactly the sorts of properties that are going to yeah. fall dramatically in price when either the next flood comes or, and then for a period of time, you know, people don't have short, well, people in that short period of time when people do have a memory, um, or when the market slows down, because then it becomes important. These things become important. And it's, so, you know, for any commentator, for any agent to be encouraging you to just get into the market, it doesn't matter what, just get in the market. You've got to get on the ladder, but to be pointing in the direction of those heavily compromised properties, danger, danger, danger. Yeah, absolutely. Especially if it's an investment house uh, that's encouraging you to buy an investment and saying, don't worry about the main road because the main road won't grow. Uh, it will grow, can't grow that much less than the other streets. Just buy it anyway. Uh, that might, that extra potentially 1% a year is a lot of money. And so just avoid make, buying compromised assets as an investment. The other conversation you mentioned there, Veronica, about you know, making money off poorer assets. Um, if you time it perfectly, absolutely, you could have bought a really compromised property in 2018 and sold it in 2021 and probably made arguably maybe more money than, say, the better street mm. just over that three-year period. But the problem is you've by actually doing that trade, you've also got to pay 5% for stamp duty, selling yep. costs, sunk costs. Um, and so it's hard to make money trading property because of the ongoing costs and also capital gains tax. Yep. You know, you made 40%, but you lost 10% of that in capital gains tax, 10% in, say, fees. Um, and then you've got to go and buy another asset. And yep. so in this market, you go, well, the good stuff's going really hot. Then you want to sit out and then you lose, lose growth because you're out of the market. And so I think it's a very fraught with danger. Flipping is the same sort of issue like buying compromised properties is you've got to keep on doing it to keep on uh, making money that way long term. And um, that sort of buying in poor markets, selling in good markets, you don't get those opportunities constantly. You only get them for a certain period, for a certain maybe three years in 10 um, rather than, you know, all 10 years in a row. <laughs> Which basically means that all your capital and your borrowing potential, borrowing capacity, has to be sitting there just waiting for a crap market so that you can pick up some junk stock so that then you can hold on to it until the market takes off again and then flog it and, you know, and, th and then pay the tax and the costs and all the rest of it. It doesn't actually make sense when you think about it that way. But it's the only logical way to approach it. And so I guess that's the thing. When I, in academically, it was like, this is what I'm going to do. And then in practice, when I sat down yeah. and worked all that sort of stuff, it was like, that's false. That's a like that's a difference between being, you know. And look, the the classic um, bet that Warren Buffett had about ETFs versus active share trading, it's the same thing, really. It's like it, it, the ETF, the equivalent here is you buy a really solid asset, and yeah. you and you just let it do its job. As long as it's a good quality asset, let it do its job. That's the equivalent of buying an ETF with low costs and you're buying, effectively buying the market um, if you do if you choose your asset well and um, as opposed to this flipping and trading and all this energy around it but burning a lot of costs in the process and also taking on a hell of a lot more risk. Yeah, and what ends up happening is people don't ever make those full returns. They don't ever buy that compromised property at the absolute lowest part of the market. Yeah. You need luck more than skill to do that. Mm. So, you know, we didn't. We kind of knew that maybe the election would have been a turning point. So maybe you would have bought, but it was the kind of market moved maybe late twenty eighteen, not early twenty nineteen. So you had to be pretty fortuitous to 
bought that property right at the lowest price and got and so and then to basically sell at the highest price and a lot of people sell too early so they buy too late they may have bought after the election so maybe 10 percent of growth they just missed out on and then they potentially sell too early they maybe have sold late last year um, and then they missed out the growth this year. Well, they Same sell happens- too late, really. You know, well, absolutely, exactly. <laughs> um, they they get too greedy. And the same thing happens with share trading. You know, a lot of people would have thought um, in March, April time, you know, markets down forty percent. I'm going to wait for the stock markets to keep falling. That was the consensus view. Mm. And then they would have sat on their hands. Um, a couple of months later, the market's up twenty percent. And you know, they've missed that boat. And then they go, oh, should I chase it now? Oh, maybe no. And so it's really hard to time in markets because unfortunately emotions play too much of a role in that decision. Please join us for our next episode. We've got Martin North joining us again. We've got him out of the bear cave. We're keen to find out his perspective on the surprisingly buoyant property market we're experiencing at the moment. What happened to the JobKeeper cliff and where is pain being felt amongst property owners amid the haze of rising prices? If you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs or North Shore, my team and I can help you buy without regrets. Reach out via my website, gooddeeds.com.au. If you're looking to buy your first home, thinking of upgrading into a new one or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, my team love to carefully guide you on this journey. And most importantly, get the finance right. Reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. Thanks for joining us. We'd love to see you again. And remember, don't be a dumbo.